Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 68. Advice to spouses, find something that brings you joy and excitement that you can take ownership with because otherwise it's just a chore. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating cost. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's show, we have Bent and Christy Line. They're grazing sheep, getting started with cattle, doing some crops, in western Nebraska. I think it's a great story they're just getting started on. Before we get to Bent and Christy, 10 seconds about my farm. Heat's here. However, we did get a little bit of rain, which was really nice. It is breeding season. Bulls are out with the cows. I am not pulling the bulls out early because I take, and the cows who don't calve in my calving window, they get sold as bred cows. So I'll keep the bulls out with the herd until I need them somewhere else, which I share bulls bulls with my dad. So he's got a fall calving herd. So they will stay out there till November. Because my main goal is, for me, a bread cow brings more money than an open cow. For the podcast tidbit this week, you're listening to this. Well, if you hear my voice, you are listening to this. We are almost to 95,000. In fact, by the end of the day, we'll be at 95,000 downloads for the lifetime of the podcast, which is just crazy to me. Never once did I think this podcast would reach that many downloads. And mom, thank you for downloading it 94,000 times. Actually, it's a pretty amazing benchmark to me because I really, I really didn't know how this would go. So I really thank you for listening. And I thank you for sharing and joining me on this journey as we learn about other farmers and what they're doing. Thank you. Enough of that. Let's talk to Benton and Christy. Benton, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thank you, Cal. Thanks for having me and my wife, who's going to step in later. I, I listened to your most recent episode earlier today and saw that you actually quoted my my initial correspondence to you. And thanks for your, the show that you do. And um I mean, I like a, a lot of the guests that you've had, and 
but in particular, I like that you have some beginning farmers on there. It's um, our journey has not been easy. There's been a lot of tough times, and uh, it's just kind of encouraging to hear other people and who have made it to some degree or or another, and um, and the challenges they've gone through, and I guess the fact that they've they've made it to some level. So that's great, Ben. I I really appreciate the email and your words you put in there about that because one of the main reasons of the podcast is to know we're not in this by ourselves and we've got other people and there's multiple ways to do this. And if we can encourage other people wherever they are on the journey to take the next step, I count that as a win. So Benton, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Went to college in Colorado, Colorado State, studied geology and have a degree in German too, but don't really use that much. And currently work as a geologist and most of my adult life is was in Colorado and then just recently moved back to Nebraska. This is our the second version of our farm here. The farm itself, we farm, what is it, about 223 acres and then we have a little over 500 acres of pasture. A couple hundred acres that are accessible to us through a family friend and kind of allow us to grow. So we're a graded livestock and farming operation. Our, our big money makers are our sheep. Navajo churro is the breed we focus on. We also have a few cows, chickens, and like a large Salatin-style eggmobile. You know, we focus on regenerative-type practices, and so one of one of the regenerative, or one of the facets, I guess, of soil health is biodiversity, so we have a diverse crop rotation, and we'll try to grow about anything we can with limited equipment. Equipments are a big limitation, because, you know, we're, we're first generation. I should have started with that. So get, getting into this from scratch and equipment's expensive. So we've got a tractor and a drill basically for planting. So we'll grow whatever we can plant with a drill. A lot of times our catch crops will even have companions planting with them when we do the cover cropping thing. And so that adds to the biodiversity. We try to, another facet of soil health that we are working on is minimizing soil disturbance. We're also trying to be organic and uh, in cropping systems, if you're organic, you typically rely heavily on tillage. And then, you know, a lot of the region guys who aren't no-till advocates, they uh, rely to some degree on herbicides. And so you kind of have to pick and choose between the two evils. There's no perfect cropping system. And so I reasoned that, you know, in nature, there's some natural analogs to, to tillage, bioturbation, where if you look at pigs, you know, they might be a, a natural example. So we have gone down the tillage route, but we do it very minimally. We... Um, think we figured out a system where we just till once every other year and it's with a thing called a sweet plow so it doesn't even invert the soil all it does is it cuts under the soil it lifts it up heaves it heaves it sets it back down and so then you're you know turning it over and, and frying your microbes and all the organic matters staying in place i think that the down falls of it or you can develop a plow pan and you're still cutting up your mycorrhizal network and then the livestock integration, you know, we are always grazing our livestock across our fields to fertilize, and, and we use them heavily for weed control, too. They're part of the weed control management system. Very interesting, Benton. Now, now one thing before we, we get into a little bit more of what you're doing on your farm, you, you mentioned your first generation. What attracted you to, to agriculture? Okay. My first job... Uh, I was an exploration geologist up in Alaska and working out of a really remote, the camp was not uh, something pre-established. It was 
constructed dirt runway just just for us geologists to be out there exploring. And then from that base camp, we would fly further every day in a helicopter, and I'd get dropped off and collect rock samples and do mapping, and it was pretty neat. But while doing that job, it occurred to me how desperate our our situation was in terms of resource extraction. I just I just started to become aware of the, the links that we're going to to extract minerals and made me become more conscientious of how I live and, and my daily consumption and the sort of products I, I buy and use. And um, somewhere around the same time, I read The Omnivore's Dilemma. You know, that, pic- that book paints a picture of industrial agriculture, gives you, you know, the nice alternative story with highlighting Joel Salatin and Polyface Farms. My mom, you know, we grew up in rural Colorado. My mom was a teacher at country school. My grandparents farmed in Nebraska, so I, you know, I had that farm to go back to and you know, around ho- holidays and summer. That book ha- had a big influence. I started to draw connections between industrial agriculture and resource consumption. In between geology jobs, I worked for my my uncle on his farm. Would, and so that kind of gave me real-world, hands-on experience in farming that helped me draw more connections, see how things can be done a little differently. And, you know, he's a no-till advocate, you know, relies on herbicides and, and some other inputs. Through working with my my uncle, I realized that I liked farming. Just that experience, you know, every day I'm, I'm challenged. It's scientific and it's fulfilling. It's producing food, I think, is more fulfilling than looking for minerals resources, as exciting as that job was. Somewhere in there, I was reading a lot of Wendell Berry, but he's really critical of Christians and their lack of attention to environmental issues and health issues. So that resonated with me and I boiled up inside of me and I, I realized, well, if I'm going to be a good Christian and love my neighbor as myself and taking into account all the things I learned in school and the experiences I had, at, you know, under, understanding environmental issues and how what I do affects people downwind and downstream of me, I thought, well, I guess I'm going to be a farmer probably in 2011. And then, um, it took a long time before we actually started farming, but that was, you know, that's, I guess, the brainchild of it. It became sort of a, a missional thing for me. Hey, got, got you started on this, this journey. And, and our pathways to get to where we are now is always so interesting for everyone. We each have our own journey. Now, you said that was about 2011. And so what did you do to start working towards your farm? I think at the time, National Young Farmer Coalition was trying to connect people, you know, the older generation where people are phasing out farms and looking for younger generations to come in. I didn't have a lot of experience at my practical farm experience, but I did end up working a couple other farms in between geology jobs. So I got some more experience and then um, lived frugally and saved money. 2017, my, my oldest brother, he was pretty involved in this dream too. You know, I, you know, I started talking a lot about it together. And so he and I bought our first farm down in South Central Colorado together. That was 128 acres, mostly irrigated pasture. So no, no cropping component down there. And then even once we bought that property, you know, initially I was still traveling a lot for work. And so it was really just a hobby farm. I had a few chicken cats <laughs> and a nice, nice old neighbor lady would come down and take care of my chickens and cats. I was out working and I traveled to California a lot. I met Christy and we got married and that was 2019. 
marrying Christy is what really helped us to get going. And so that's when we first got cheap and things kind of grew from there. One thing you mentioned there that you said from 2011 or about that time, you're thinking farming something I want to do. And it wasn't until 2017 you got started because you were patient, you saved up money, you did that grind just to get you to that point. You worked on some farms in between jobs and stuff to get there. And I know a lot of times, even on our podcast, we're like, just get started wherever you are. But there's there's a lot to be said. You know, there's a lot of times in all of our lives that it doesn't look from the outside we're making much progress, but we're doing the grind. And we're getting there. So sometimes we have to be careful of just jumping in too deep and just working and getting there. So when we're ready or when when the time comes, we're ready. So I really respect that grind because so I, I mean, I know I get distractible and it takes a lot to to maintain that focus and work through it. It's hard when you, you have, well, all these books and podcasts and, and things where you read about Joel Salatin and Gabe Brown and this, that, and the next person and how they're doing it. And you, you want to do that and you want it to happen now. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't get there overnight. And it's kind of like we've all heard, you know, what we see on social media is the highlight reel and not what's happening every day. These people you read about and you hear about, they've been doing this for a long time with, without their name being known. And then they, they hit the point that now so many of us know who they are. So you mentioned you got married in 2019, and that's when you all decided on sheep. Did your wife have a history with sheep, or what brought you to sheep? My wife also does not come from a farming background. She's, I think, two generations removed from the farm. But the main reason we came to sheep was just because of the environment we were in. All all the farms I worked on were cattle, so I always thought I was going to work with cattle. That's what I wanted to do. But I'm also pretty you know, conscientious of, of the environment that I'm in. And, and I recognized where we were in South Central Colorado was low enough rainfall that it qualified as desert. We got into Navajo Churro by accident too, just a work connection. Someone knew a gal who was selling some Navajo Churro. And so we, we loved them and, and, and we learned, don't want to step on Chrissy's toes because she'll probably talk more about them, but they were, that's a breed that was developed in that part of the country, you know, um, Northern New Mexico, Southern Colorado, Southern Utah, the, the Navajo Nation area. And we, when we moved to Nebraska, where we're at is still considered semi-arid, you know, harsh, harsh cold winters, hot summers. So still thought they were pretty reasonably well suited for this climate. And we kept, kept with them. So we really like them. So let's talk a little bit about Western Nebraska, where you are. What kind of precipitation are we looking at? The NRCS map says something like 14 to 17. Or 14 to 18. How are you all doing this year on rain? This year has been great. The first two summers we were up here were really dry. I think a lot of the northern plains had a pretty brutal winter, but it, all that snow was great. And, and we had a wet spring, and it's creating a weirdly late wheat harvest for people. I think uh, maybe record late in some cases. I think the Oklahoma wheat harvest was a little bit delayed, too. I'm not involved in that, so I'm not 100% sure, but I watched sun up Oklahoma ag show and I think it was delayed for a while but of course we've got it wrapped up now it's all going north so about 16 inches of uh, precipitation a year for you there in western Nebraska when is your 
first frost of the year and last frost? First frost is early October. Last frost, I want to say, is early May. Oh, okay. So you're about a month ahead of me or behind me, depending on which way you look at that. Because we're we're looking at the 1st of November, somewhere in there for our first frost, first week in April for the last frost. Of course, that varies so much. It's really hard to pinpoint. You know, that average we never hit. The last few years, it seems like summer goes later into the fall. Like we've been having warm falls. Or I, I should say winter has been longer, kind of stepping on spring's toes a little bit. Just an observation that I've, I've had for our area for a few years. That seems pretty accurate here. Now, in my area, we try to enjoy both days of autumn. So whenever those occur, it just goes, it's hot. And then we get a couple nice days and then for some reason it's cold. So, you know, I, I would love for that transition to take a little bit longer here. In addition to your your farming, you've got some grazing acres. What kind of forage are you you working with there? The brome grasses would be like smooth brome, downy brome, which is your cheat grass. That's a weedy plant. Oh, yeah. Japanese brome and blue gram and hairy gram, buffalo grass, really short grasses. The wheat grasses, like western wheat grass, intermediate wheat grass. Forbs would be things like wild sunflowers, woolly verbena. Silver leaf scurf pea is a, a legume. Sweet clover, would, we have quite a bit of. And do you have any irrigation? We don't. We're 100% dry. Crops, too. All dry land. So what does that do for your your crops? And this is really out of my my element because I've never farmed. I do drill in a few cool season stuff. but For me, personally, it just means that I don't try to grow things like corn and soybeans that that need more water. Mentioned earlier, we've got the equipment limitation, but another limitation is markets, you know, trying to, like buckwheat's a great thing to grow here, but something I can just take to town. It's something we're working on, but just making connections with the alternative markets to grow more drought-resistant crops. Which that makes sense, yes. Do you mind sharing what you're growing this year? Got a barley field, oats, spring peas, uh, wheat field, Winter it's winter wheat, in a sunflower field, all those crops, like I mentioned earlier, we have planted with companions. We have one field, actually, that is a rest year, I'll call it, where I drill oats, rye, pea, lentils, flax, just letting it grow out. Right now, the sheep and cattle are out on it, grazing it and fertilizing. Sunflower field, I really like to talk about. It's a fun field. So planted with a drill, which is unconventional. Usually, they're done with a planter in, you know, 30 intros or so. And we have a bunch of companion plants carefully select species that are not going to compete with the sunflowers and they're going to form kind of a understory or you know your lower canopy harvest time we'll harvest the sunflowers off top and everything else will remain under there and then we'll put livestock in to graze it oh interesting and how tall do those sunflowers grow probably four or five feet i'm just curious i've I've not seen a, a sunflower field that i know of you know you you see on Facebook and stuff, really giant ones. And you can get a lot of different species for the home garden. So I was just curious there. The dust they produce really builds up in the combine and it's pretty flammable. So it's a great crop to have in your rotation. That You know, really deep taproot pulls phosphorus back to the surface and cycles phosph and good to get a broadleaf in your rotation. When you combine those, are they cut pretty low or are you cutting them pretty high to just get that head off of them? 
I have one header for everything and it's just a platform header. You know, that's like the header with the paddles. And so I just, I lift that, the paddles up really high and I'll cut it just under the heads and rotation speed down really low and, and match my travel speed to it so that it kind of plops them on there. And Oh, very good. And what kind of um, companions did you plant with it? Mung beans, cow peas, uh, spring peas, winter peas, buckwheat. There's a kale or it's a, called a forage collard. And the plan is to graze that after you harvest the sunflowers. That's right, particularly in the winter. So help, helping to reduce for hay costs. So let's just let's talk about your livestock just a little bit. How are you managing them? And you have the I, I want to say unique, but one thing we haven't talked about a lot on this podcast is farming in conjunction with livestock. So you've got your fields. You you want to leave clear so you're able to to farm them in a year or two. So that introduces some some different requirements for you. Yeah, the sheep, they are primarily on crop fields. We use them a lot to graze our weeds, you know, lots of kochia, Russian thistle, and they're great for that. We only have one pasture that's 26 acres that currently can contain our sheep. The rest of the time they're out, they're out on the cropland. We use a ton of polywire to contain them and move them. The place where we do the best with our rotations is just around the farmstead, and it's about 15 acres, and we're able to set up lots of small paddocks and move them through our yard. And the old the old corral system, we'll, we'll loop into that, and each of the old pens is a paddock. But the winter grazing is primarily done on the crop fields, too. Now, you mentioned um, polywire on your crop fields. Are you using one strand, two strands? I would say that we've learned... Rotations actually help a lot with containing your sheep. The more you move them and keep them on good forage, the, the better they stay in. Right now, the, the field, we're actually, one of the, the west side of it is just two wires, so we're containing them with two wires. But a lot of times we'll use up to four, more often now that we've kind of learned learned to keep them in. And, you know, just keeping it hot is really important too. Yeah. I had wondered if you needed more wire or more strands, the Navajo sheep are a little bit more of a land race in my mind. And when I think about land races, they're usually a little bit more athletic and less respectful about fences. And I say that, and then I have to immediately say, tell myself I'm wrong because I have Coriante cows, and I move them all around with a single wire. Granted, I did sell the jumpers. Anyone who decided the the single strand was not enough, they got a all expense paid trip. And now I have n- no problem at all with them. We're just now getting to a size where we just under 90 with our sheep. And um, so we haven't been too selective yet. It's kind of like a coin toss with some of these decisions because we have this one ewe who my wife names all of the ewes. This one is Rosemary. She's probably our most docile ewe. She'll actually come up and let you pet her and a lot of them are more flighty, and she produces a really nice fleece. And we get a lot of value out of our fleeces, and so that's part of the equation for us is, is the fleece quality. Oh, yeah. However, she's the one who probably, if, if anyone's going to instigate going through a fence, it's going to be her. So it's like, well, good fleece, or deal with the uh, sheep getting out. Rarely are those decisions just clear-cut. So, yeah, it's a compromise. With your sheep, when are you lambing them? And I know fleece 
are a big mark or a big part of your your flock, but how are you marketing lambs as well? I'm happy to announce that we finally are at a place where we can control our rams separately from our ewes for a large portion of the year. So historically, it was whenever. Finally got it down to spring lambs, so they this year they came in May, June. And then, yeah, for marketing lamb meat, uh, so far it's all been word of mouth. This year, we have a pretty significant lamb crop. You know, going to need to explore some other means for marketing. We we need to figure out how to get them sold. When you market your lambs, what age were or have you marked them in the past? We generally shoot around 10 months is kind of the average age that we do where we get a decent size lamb. And- It'll be interesting to see how it goes going forward for you. And you'll have to report back to us how it goes. And especially with a larger number, you're having to market. Now, in in addition to your sheep, you have a few cattle and you have chickens. So for your cattle, what's your plans there? Another instance where we're playing the patient game, we just have four of them are my brothers, actually, and then four are ours. So we have eight on the property right now. Kind of a hodgepodge of breeds. The Scottish Highland are the direction we want to go with the herd eventually. Looking at our climate, I think they're pretty suitable for our climate. I would not try to raise them if, if I lived, you know, in eastern Oklahoma, probably. I, it's almost too hot and muggy for me. I think they're pretty to look at. I have no desire to raise them. My wife keeps telling me we need to buy a couple because they're cute. Are you running your cattle and sheep together in that elusive flirt? In the wintertime, mostly, yes. They're all together. Makes winter feeding logistics easier. Oh, yeah. And, and right now, they're, the cows are kind of split up. So we do have some of the cows with our main flock, but some are out on another pasture. Like I said, we, so we have quite a bit of pasture acres, but we can only utilize 26 of it with our, ye- with our ewes. So to utilize all the rest of that pasture, we have cows out on there right now. And we lease some of that out to other people. And- Which makes sense. I, you know, you mentioned your rotations are not quite where you want them to be. I can talk more confidently about my cattle rotations than I can my sheep. My sheep, basically on the main farm, we've got each eight, we've got three eighties on the main farm and each 80 basically will hold sheep. So we basically have three pastures of rotation that we kind of haphazardly do with the sheep. And we just kind of move them to wherever we need them, but they don't really do a very good job of respecting my barbed wire fences dividing my other paddocks. So, And then, you know, I don't get to use them on lease land, which I would love to do, but I do have a few on lease land using electric netting, and I just find that's a lot of work. Um, I know a lot of people use it to, to great results, but it may be more work than I want to do. So in addition to your your cattle, you also have layers? Yeah, we do. We have uh, a little over 100. And uh, at this point, I don't know if I have too much to say about them. We're we're just getting into them. But this is the first time where we have a larger flock. We're planning on selling a lot of eggs. They're just about to start laying here by by the end of the month. We'll start having eggs. Hopefully we can get people lined up to buy them all. Benton, what's been some challenges that maybe you didn't anticipate on getting your farm started and going to where it is now? Both capital and time are our biggest challenges. We've been able to figure it out so far. And then, you know, operating costs are are more than I 
budgeted for. And so it always just, yeah, it kind of caught me off guard how, how much it costs to buy seed and, and fuel and tractor parts. And, and then time, you know, because of the capital challenge, we both work, Christy and I both work. So that leads to a time challenge. And we have two wonderful young girls who are under three. And so they're not, you know, they're not old enough where they're very independent at all. They require a lot of time, which is good time. But um, yeah, so just wrestling between. And then, you know, as we grow and we're starting to have a lot of good product to sell, the next big challenge for us is marketing. Those challenges of capital and time. It's amazing how universal those are, but how very real they are, because it may be a problem everyone has, but it's a it's a real issue. The next issue is marketing, which I've said on the podcast before, that's not my forte at all. There is a podcast I like to listen to, and I can't think of the lady's name because I haven't listened lately, but it's about marketing and it's a really good podcast. Whenever I'm in that mind, I'll have to look it up and, and I'll put it in the notes as well as let you know it as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Any help is good. I do like to read Alan Nation's books. They seem really helpful. He's got some good marketing books. And Joel Salatin, I think, has a lot of wisdom when it comes to marketing. He's done wonders on marketing. Greg Judy's does wonders on marketing. What's your main tactic? To be honest, because, well, I don't want to blame it on anything. I was going to say, because I work off the farm, and stuff, we have really not got into selling direct to the consumer right now. It's somewhere I'm wanting to go, but with my beef cattle, I wanted to change breeds up a little bit because I did not have, I did not have breeds that I thought would finish well on grass and I would like to grass finish. So that's what I'm looking at, but I'm about a year off from that. For the sheep, we just sell them through a ring right now. I do sell a handful directly off the farm from word of mouth. That's been a debate for me because the additional work selling that one lamb, I have not priced it high enough. It's worth it to me than just selling them all through the ring right now. Yeah, so I just haul a load up. And, you know, to, to go with that a little bit, I've got the full-time off the farm job. So when I get home and I'm doing my chores and stuff, the last thing I want is someone showing up to talk an hour to pick up a lamb. And so that's a little bit of a mindset issue for me. And I say pick up a lamb. I'm selling the lambs I've sold are to some ethnic groups that want live lambs. That's just kind of where, where I am right now. We, we mostly do, you know, holes and halves where people will buy a share and they, they get it. We have a butcher just three miles down the road in town, and, but they're not USDA certified center so but then there's another one that is usda we have to adjust the price to account for you know, f- fuel costs and travel out there and butchering the processing at a usda certified facility is much higher than the, the one here in town and so all those prices are reflected in the individual cuts and we have we have some harvest hosts that come by it's farmsteads just op- open to campers to come and, and camp and, and typically the agreement is that they just buy a a product from you and otherwise they can stay for free but anyway so we had these this one family we're interested in the ground land and then they told us well we can't afford that and i and it's hard to hear because we don't want to sell something that they can't afford but at the same time it's like well if i go much lower then we're going to lose money on it <laughs> so it's a don't want to set ourselves up for failure right but but you have to for you to be sustainable 
To be honest, that's an area I struggle with. Like I said, we haven't sold much off the farm. And I say we, that's me. My dad sells a few head off the farm. And I say off the farm, we deliver to the processor and he sells a half or a whole. And now dad has a little bit different breeds than I do. So we're doing some grain finishing with whatever he sells. But that price, we talk about that price quite a bit because that price has got to be high enough to account for, well, it's got to account for the additional labor and the one-off stuff that you've got to do. It takes it takes time to load up that calf and haul it in there. And then just, there's all these factors sometimes we forget about in figuring that we've got to add in. And that's yep. one reason so much of our stuff is just wholesale through the auction ring. It makes it easy for me. I, I feel a lot of demands for my time. Not any more than anyone else. Everybody's always busy. But it just works better for us at this point. I would like to move to a more customer-centric model. And I'd love to get more customers out here on the farm, see what we're doing, and do some things. We're just not quite there, in my opinion, right now. Ben, those are some of your challenges going through. And you've also mentioned some of your goals earlier in that you're with your cropping and trying to to be organic and be regenerative. What are some other goals you have? Just generally speaking, I'd say growth. We're, we're still in a growing phase and streamlining thing. You know, there's a lot of things we probably do kind of the hard way, just because just we're not s- set up to do it quick and smoothly. Or And there's some things that we're figuring out. Um, an example of that, I'll share really quickly is our chicken water, right? We use those metal canisters that are like the double wall canister that where water seeps out into the little trough. And the reason for that was we already had those like platform heaters for winter to keep them frost free. It just seemed like a more cost effective way to just use those. But you know, we have to take time to fill them occasionally. I have, I have a tank mounted inside the, the chicken coop. So there's a kind of a reservoir there. And so we, we have to go in the middle of the day, fill them up. So it just creates like a midday chore that eats into our schedule. Initially, I thought, well, I don't want to do anything too fancy because we're, we're going to have to change it for the winter setup anyway. But now I'm, I'm going back and thinking, well, if I invest some time in, in setting up some, some nipples where it's just constant feed, we're losing a lot of water from, from the wind or, or setting it on uneven ground, it's going to save us that midday chore and we're going to oh, be yeah. more, more streamlined. So that, that's an example of the sort of things. And then, you know, the fencing infrastructure is continual development so that we can do more rotations and, and set up more cross fences and just have better pasture. I would really like to get to a point where we could have a, a hired hand. So ho- hopefully we're generating enough revenue soon that we can do that. Actually, the, I laugh because I'm moving that electro netting today before we recorded this. And I'm thinking... Why don't I pay my nephew to come up here and move this fence for me? We do multiple things, and then we learn how to do them better, and we get better. And I'm excited to watch your journey and see where you go from here. But Ben, it is time we transition to the overgrazing section. And for that, we're not talking to you. We're going to talk to your wife, Christy. That's right. Well, Christy, we want to welcome you to the podcast. A little bit different where we're just having you hop on and do the overgrazing section. Yes, thank you for having me. I kind of take over the sheep enterprise, so I have a, a little more detail I can provide than 
Benton. So Wonderful. Just remind us what breed of sheep you're using, and let's go from there. Navajo churro sheep, and those are the oldest, one of the oldest breeds in America. And we just happened to get three of them when we lived in southwest Colorado. We kind of rescued them, and we learned more about them, and it was a good fit for our climate and for kind of our goals. So we continued to expand on that breed. They're part of the Livestock Conservatory. There's 30 breeds of sheep that are in that category. So it's been cool to kind of learn more about their history and the Navajo Nation. They consider sheep as their life and sustaining their life. And so we're trying to honor that breed. Now, they're a little bit different than most of the sheep we talk about on the podcast, because typically we end up talking about hair sheep. Yeah. So their wool is prized more towards hand spinners and like fiber art because it's a dual coated and it's very long. We shear them twice a year. And I mean, we could go into another tangent about us learning how to shear, but. Benton did mention a little bit about the the shearing process and you all have made great gains and being a little bit faster than the original time you did. Basically, we have self-taught how to raise these sheep. So through the shearing and doing some of the processing ourselves, learning how to skirt it and wash it. And then I started posting our raw wool on Etsy. And that's kind of where we found our artists and some of our spinners. And it's kind of taken off from there. So once we kind of built our customer base, we decided to just do direct-to-consumer because Etsy was taking almost 50% of our sales. Once I was able to find a few artists to use it and more word of mouth, we were able to just sell through like Instagram and our website, which has been nice. But yeah, there's some fiber artists out there who who are really interested in knowing where their wool comes from and finding a ethical source, a local source, and something that they connect with. So I do a lot of also photography and run our social media. So I'm able to post every day, every morning, going out with the sheep when all the lambs are born. So through that, I think the artists can connect with a certain sheep and then they, they know like, this is this sheep's wool and we're bringing it back to life in, in a circle. And so we've had fiber artists show different wool projects at expos in New York and in Florida. There's some pretty, if, if you can kind of look outside the box of just selling your wool to, to a manufacturer, or, you know, the commodity market, I think there's opportunity to, to make some money off of it. I've learned how to make these living rugs by felting. And I think that makes actually probably most of our money with our wool for these rugs. But so along with that, if, if there are people who do have wool sheep and they're looking for ways to use their wool, I don't know if you've heard of a fiber shed, but they have different regional fiber sheds all over the U.S. So we joined the Mountains and Plains fiber shed and they're a huge advocate for regenerative farming. So they have various programs that farmers and producers can join to help transition to regenerative agriculture. They talk a lot about the carbon to carbon cycle and how sheep are like the number one, I guess, ruminant or animal that totally goes full circle with their wool and 
with everything. So it's kind of cool to to work with them. And they also provide, uh, there's a directory that producer consumer that people can look up. So, so that's been, that's been a good resource for us. Oh, that's, that sounds like a wonderful recess resource. I want to jump back just a little bit to the sure. process you do with wool. Benton talked a little bit about the shearing process. He didn't really get into much detail there, just the amount of time and the learning process there. So what are you doing to the wool after you shear it? So after we shear it, we lay each fleece out and you do an initial, it's called skirting, which you take out all the dirty parts and the underbelly and pick out vegetable matter, which, you know, we graze outside year, year round. So we don't have a ton of hay and stuff in it, but you pick out what you can. And so then once you have your, your quality raw wool, then you go through a washing process. We use an organic scour and it takes like a couple 20 minute soaks and a rinse to get it clean. And then we built a, a big drying rack to put it on. And then after you wash and dry it, you go through a carding machine, which pulls out all the fibers and lines them all up in one direction. So then it can be pulled apart into getting ready to spin or do whatever else you want to do with it. So that the process of making it into yarn, rugs and things like that are slightly different. But we have started now that we have more than a handful of sheep, we have taken a lot of our yarn to a local mill to get into the roving and yarn and that kind of thing. So, And you mentioned a while ago about some of these wool artists that they can connect with the sheep because they see them on your Instagram and stuff. Is the wool separated by you or are you mixing that based upon color? I am obviously don't know very much about it. Yeah, well, so the Navajo Trio sheep, they're a multicolor breed where they have a lot of different colors within the same breed. So there's some that are white, some multicolored, some gray, some brown, red. So there's a lot of different colors. So we we keep them separate. So when we process, we'll put all the whites together. And then the a lot of times I'll actually have them processed per sheep so that when the yarn comes out, when you label it, like this is rosemary, and then you have a picture of the sheep with the specific yarn. So Very interesting on that. And you mentioned you make some rugs too? Yes. So they look exactly like sheepskins, um, ex- except they're, you know, that's why we call them living rugs because a uh, sheep did not have to go through its life cycle in order for you to get the rugs. So, so I just use more of our wool on the backside of a fleece after it's sheared and it's the whole process to wet felt it all together, but they look like sheepskin rugs. So. Oh, very nice. I, that's something new I didn't know about. I don't know how specific this is towards our sheep breed in general, but I kind of wanted to touch base just a tiny bit on not growing up on a farm, not having any agriculture background. I just, I feel like moving out to this farm, I initially felt very disconnected from what we were doing and I felt like I did not have a purpose. And it was kind of a hard year for us because I feel like I felt like we were chasing his dream and I was not a part of it. So I guess advice, advice to spouses, whether that's a a man or a woman in this situation, just finding something that 
brings you joy and excitement within the farm realm. If you can just find something, you know, the sheep did it for me on um, the lambs and the, and the wool. I think it just sparked something in me and I kind of went with it, but it could be any small thing that, that brings you joy that you can kind of be a part of it. Cause I think that was the turning point for me for kind of going along with this is like actually finding something that, you know, has a little bit of purpose. And overall, I mean, we have a bigger purpose of just, you know, making this world a little better place in our corner and, and, you know, raising our kid to, I guess, enjoy this lifestyle. I think it's important to, to have joy in what you're doing because otherwise it's just a chore. Very important thing you bring up there about, and we struggle with that. I say we, my wife and I discuss this because the farm is my dream and she's kind of, it makes you happy. So here we are. And at times she's like, do we have to? And so, so I think that's so important to find how, I hate to use the word how you fit in, but, but find your passion. Yeah. Passion. I'm trying to think of another name, but yeah, something that you could kind of take ownership with, or I think it just, yeah, helps with becoming more teammates than just an accessory. I'm glad I found that because I was, I was definitely struggling with finding my peace in this. So, so that's been good. Very good. Christy, before we, we wrap up, and I know it's really quick for your section on here, you added that piece in, which is, is so relevant that gets overlooked. Do you have anything else to, to add to the challenges or future goals with your farm? So I think there's going to be a point where, so our goal is to get up to 200 flock. There's going to be a point where we're probably going to have to be more creative in how we're selling our yarn and or selling our wool and using our wool and there's just there's so much you can do with it so i think trying to find other ways whether it's i know wool has been used as fertilizer you know turning into mulch or animal bedding and things like that i think and then you know i'm sure benton touched on just marketing like our our lamb meat and other products just because we live in such a rural community just finding our ways to to actually sell all of our products right now, I think is a challenge, but we're getting there. You know, to, to say that cliche that everyone says, if it's easy, everyone would do it, but yeah, got to start somewhere. <laughs> you do. And I mentioned to Benton, there's a podcast I'll have to share with you all about marketing that I think is really good. I can't think of the name right now because I haven't listened to it lately. I kind of go and and spurts with my podcast listening. I'll focus on this podcast for a while, and then I move to another one. So I'll I'll find that, and I'll make sure I have it in the show notes as well as let you all know. Okay, that sounds good. Well, Christy, we're we're so glad you could join us on here today. Well, thank you, thank you for letting me talk a tiny bit. I know, I mean, I could go into big, I could go into detail on things, but I think just getting the the gist of it that you can find ways to make your wool valuable. I think if you take the effort towards finding ways to sell it. so I think that's excellent. It's time in our podcast for our famous four questions, same four questions that we ask all of our guests. And for famous four, we welcome Benton back. What is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? For me, the motivation behind the farm is a big deal. And for that, I point people to Wendell Berry essays. There's a ton of books that are compilations of his essays 
and you can kind of cherry pick through them and, and read the ones that are of interest to you. Along those lines, I, I know this one was recently recommended by another guest, Joel Salatin's Pigness of the Pig. I think if you have a strong motivation behind your farm journey that is bigger than you yourself, it helps, helps you to keep going. Oh, yes. Very true. Anyway, yeah, so a lot of good podcasts out there, yours, in, yours included. Um, Gabe Brown's group, Understanding Ag. It took me a long time before I ever discovered Gabe Brown. I Through Omnivore's Dilemma, I was pointed to Joel Salatin and, and Wendell Berry and Alan Savory, Jim Garish, Greg Judy. Anyway, eventually Gabe Brown I uh, was pointed to, and I took a liking to him, I, I think because of the environment and the type of ag I grew up around and, and how my grandpa farms, just the, the scale that he operates at and the, you know, his incorporation of, you know, the grain production, Joel Salatin did like, or does the egg mobiles and, and the pastured pork. And anyway, he's got this consulting group called Understanding Ag on their website. They have a bunch of webinars and now I'm connecting to another person. And in that group, there's a guy, Dr. Alan Williams, and I really like his material. Every talk I listen to of Dr. Alan, Alan Williams, I learn a lot. And then on the cropping side, there's a guy named Rick Clark out in Indiana who does Farm Green podcast. Not too much about livestock in there, but he does run some cows on his cropland. He's, he's another guy who's trying to be um, regenerative no-till, or he's almost no-till. He just really genuinely cares about people and the, the regenerative ag movement. Very good. Excellent recommendations. And where I'm on the livestock side, I'm not familiar with the Farm Green podcast, but I'm going to have to catch me an episode or two of it. Yeah. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? A sappy answer for this one. It's my family. Christy, she does so much with the sheep and the marketing and the wool. My mom is around almost all the time and she helps out a lot with the kids. She even does, she helps with chores. She, she even does a lot of tractor work. My oldest brother... He comes up probably once a month for almost a week at a time, and he's a huge help. Engineering mind helps come up with a lot of novel solutions. He does a lot of tractor work, too. This spring, in fact, he did almost all of our planning. My dad comes up about once a month, and, you know, with it being an old farmstead, there's been a lot of fixer-upper projects that he's helped with. My little brother helped a lot, especially when we moved up here. Just He manages a what I consider a mega farm with all the big, fancy stuff. I have another middle brother I sh- shouldn't leave out of the equation. He, he's a great brother, too. He has, has a family that makes it less conducive to him traveling up here to visit us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, anyways, family has been huge, and I explain all, all that they do. It probably sounds like I don't do much, and that's about right. I think a person can do it by themselves, and I think a person can utilize any type of community, you know, Family comes in different shapes and forms, and uh, the family I have is, is what I have, and I'm and I'm thankful for their help. So, and then for a more practical tool, polywire. I know everyone says that. Oh yeah. I mean, we we use so much, and and where we don't have that much infrastructure, it's kind of a permanent fixture in here, even though it's not designed to be permanent. It helps us to do what we do. Both of those are excellent answers. I mean, family is so important, and and like you mentioned there. Your family may be different than my family, but family is so beneficial, whether it's it's your spouse, your extended family, siblings, if it's friends, whoever's your community, 
whoever's there for you. It's really beneficial. On the subject of polywire, I had an unfortunate incident yesterday with polywire. I needed to cross this polywire, and I'd, I'd purchased some cows yesterday, and I was taking them over to introduce them to one of my herds. And I had to cross this polywire with the trailer, so I thought, so I staked it down. Well, actually, not. I don't want to jump ahead. I got out. I had a couple polywires meeting right there, so I unhooked one. So it was going to be cold running out to where I was taking the, the cows. And the other wire was hot, and I was going to stretch it across the road and just put a couple of um, stepping posts to hold it down so I could drive over it. And so I got the one wire out of the way, and then I had another strand coming off, and I unhooked it so it was cold, and I moved it back. And then I go over to move the hot wire, and my simple mind forgot it was hot. And I grabbed a hold of that thing, and it's not just inadvertently touching it and getting shocked. I gripped it in my hand because I was moving it. Oh, man. Now, I have to say, I'm really happy with my Energizer, but I may have said something I shouldn't have said right then, but it was, oh, I do not like getting shocked. What brand Energizer were you using? Uh, That is a Cyclops Brute Solar. I have moved to the main energizers I have on lease land are Cyclops and their solar in their little solar box they sell. I am so happy with it. I've used other brands. I've used, I've got some safe stay fixes sitting in the house and speed, right? And I've got some smaller Gallagher's, but those Cyclops, I, I should be sponsored by Cyclops as much as I'm talking about them now. They they have just worked so good, and I don't find some of the issues I was having with my solar chargers before was they just couldn't handle the electro netting and all the poly wire I was putting on them. These guys, well, these guys don't even seem to notice it. It's just, I'm just really impressed. I've heard quite a few people recommend Cyclops. Next time I get a charger, maybe I'll try one of those out. Yeah, I've I've been tremendously impressed. Now, I say that for a moment yesterday, I was unimpressed, but now I'm back to being impressed. Moving on to our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? Said my piece on this already, and that was um, ab- about being, yeah, about being patient. So, yeah, I guess, you know, with, it's easy to look at the Joel Salatons and Gabe Browns, all, all the farm celebrities, if you will, and want to, you know, have a positive meaningful impact like and have an operation like theirs it's a process so just you know stay focused charge ahead do your best and one other i would uh, implore more people to try out wool breed sheeps i hear a lot of people mention how they'll they'll do hair breeds because they don't want to deal with the shearing you can totally empathize i didn't, i didn't want to either when we got started i was really you know, pretty opposed to the idea of shearing. Well, the first sheep we sheared were in 2020. So that's when COVID started. And we were signed up to go to a shearing school in Northern Colorado and it was canceled. So then we had to figure out how to do it on our own with YouTube videos. And YouTube videos are great for a lot of things. They use it for mechanicing stuff all the time. For shearing sheep, you really have to have someone who knows what they're doing, show you how to hold the sheep in the correct place and place your feet in the right way. And anyway, so our first sheep shearing was pretty painful. You know, it took over two hours to shear our first sheep. And now we're down to 
we're still not that fast, but we've since been able to go to school, my oldest brother and I, when I say we, well, that's another thing Brett helps with a lot of sharing, comes and helps share. But anyway, now we're down to like 10 minutes a sheep, still a lot of room for improvement, but significantly better. And, and, it, and it's hard, it's hard work. It's like, you know, we're both former endurance athletes and we count it as some of the most challenging physical activity that we've done. You know, in, in regenerative circles, we talk a lot about community development and creating jobs and wool creates a whole other industry. You know, it's a whole, it's a, it's a missed opportunity in a lot of places. And, you know, don't, don't play the commodity game with it. When you get into wool, you know, you, you create jobs for shears. Then there's all the, the middle men steps of processing it, you know, the textile side and, you know, making it into a fabric. And the United States, that's something we're lacking severely is the, the whole textile wool industry. And it's a great fabric, great material. As someone who used to wear a lot of, wear a lot of tech material for running and cycling and whatever else, and wool will last much, much longer without going rank on you than tech material. And I just, I would encourage young people to try wool out. Yeah, very good. Excellent advice there and, and wonderful tip about the wool breeds. I've mentioned on the podcast, everything fascinates me. So wool fascinates me and, and being able to, to do some of that, I just, no, I don't have time for it, but I do think it's really interesting. Glad to to see it work for you. And our last question, Ben, where can others find out more about you? We have a website. It's pretty far along, still a work in progress. It's guidedrockfarms.com. And Christy has a, a really nice Instagram page. She has a pretty decent following, something like 18,000 followers. And we have a Facebook page too, not super active on that, but I guess, I guess it's kind of tied to the Instagram deal. We will put links to all those in our show notes. And Ben, we appreciate you coming on. We appreciate Christy coming on and sharing with us today. Thanks so much for having us, Cal. It's been fun and uh, we'll continue to share our story. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. Thank you for listening. If you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on be our guest link. We are looking for guests for this year. So if you're interested, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support the show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is through our Patreon. If you'll go over to grazinggrass.com, 
and click on support. You'll see our links there. And that lists some ways you can support it. But you can click on the Patreon link. And for a small amount a month, you help support this podcast so we're able to put out more episodes. And we appreciate that. Also, there is a second level there. If you're a beginning farmer or just getting started and you're wanting more assistance, there is a start grazing grass level there that you could subscribe to and gain more information. No matter what you choose to do, we appreciate you listening. Keep on grazing grass.